Let's continue worshiping in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you are holy and set apart. We worship you for that. We know that you are sovereign and it's your will that is being done here on earth. We just praise you for who you are. Help us to understand today uh, the words that we'll be reading and help us to, to know what you want to speak into our life. And God, we confess that we don't always come to your word with the appropriate uh, expectation and excitement, and somehow your word almost becomes um, day-to-day or, or just sort of a normal thing. And help us to just, again, be reminded of the incredible privilege and blessing it is to have your word, um, that we can to live with it and just to be in it daily. And just thank you for your word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, last week, Dave taught uh, on Hebrews chapter 12, 18 through 24, and I'm going to be referencing that back to that a couple times, uh, because really, in some ways, these two passages go together really well. I'm going to be in Hebrews 12, 25 through 29, and there are a lot of times last week, actually, as Dave was preaching, where he'd be saying something, I'd be like, oh, that's really good, I'm going to, oh, and then he'd finish his point, and so... I'm going to have to keep making things up as I go here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But so Dave took us and we were able to to compare Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. And we were seeing that the people came to Mount Sinai and there was God on the mountain to meet them versus this new Mount Zion where Jesus came to us and we then are, are welcomed in because of that. And there the people at Mount Sinai were scared and too scared to even go up on the mountain, and they were fearful, and yet now because of Jesus as our mediator, we no longer have to be afraid. And in verse 24, he showed us that Jesus is now in heaven speaking on our behalf in a better way than any other blood could, whether that was in this uh, passage, the blood of Abel or the blood of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Jesus' blood is that perfect sacrifice speaking for us now. We were again reminded of the difference between the movable, kind of removable kingdom here on earth and the kingdom that we have to look forward to in heaven. We were encouraged to have a heavenly mind and pursue the things of God's kingdom without being heavenly absent-minded. This really could have been part two of Dave's message because, again, we will be challenged to focus on God's eternal kingdom in this passage. And we will see another comparison with Mount Sinai, and we will be reminded of God's amazing power and his holiness. And so if you haven't turned there yet, we will be in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. I will read that here. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
Well, let's jump right in. In verse 25, we see the author giving the hearers a direct call. Do not refuse him who is speaking. And then this leads us to two questions immediately. There's two points we need to look at. Who is receiving this call? Who needs to be doing the accepting? And who is speaking and who needs to be accepted? Now, we've talked about that we don't know the author of Hebrews. However, we do know the audience. Uh, Hebrews was written to professing Jews, people who um, believed in Christ and were very aware of the history of the Jews. And so these passages make sense as to why the author keeps pointing back to Mount Sinai. This would have been part of their history. They're very aware of it. And we see here the author warning these Christ-following Jews, professing Jews, to not make the same mistakes as their ancestors did back at Mount Sinai. So then, what must they do to not make these same mistakes? Who is it who's speaking to them? At Sinai, it was God the Father came onto the mountain, and he spoke with Moses, and then Moses came back down. But here, now we have Jesus speaking from heaven, and we all hear them, hear him. And so, the author is giving the hearers a direct call. Make sure you do this, and our call is to respond positively. We need to avoid the mistake of hearing Jesus and refusing him. Again, this is speaking to a people who've already witnessed and responded to the call of grace. They would confess Christ, profess Christ to be followers, But like the Jews at Sinai, there is at least the worry that they will refuse to follow God. This is even after all that they, these hearers, had seen and heard. They interacted with witnesses who were with Christ. They had seen incredible things that the early church was doing through the power of Christ. And yet again, the author is worried that some will refuse. And he's worried because we are foolish creatures and we know that there are some who will refuse. When I was growing up, I grew up in the church, uh, and probably like many of you, I was a little intimidated of sharing my faith. Evangelism uh, was not my go-to activity after school. Um, And because of that, I often desired for God to make himself known in such a powerful way that I didn't have to do anything, was basically what it was. So I would, I would have this vision of God sort of like rolling back the clouds and revealing himself and, and telling the world, hey, I'm up here, believe in me, I'm God. Or, or maybe that there would just be so many powerful miracles going on in the church that even the staunchest non-believer would have no choice yet but to accept the reality of Christ. And that was sort of my my desire, and I was hoping, you know, maybe I would have to do less work or it'd be easier for me to evangelize if God was so readily available to the people. And I think I probably wasn't alone in that. And yet, when we look at the Bible, we see that that sort of thing was happening, and yet there are still those who refuse to follow God even after they've seen and heard him. For instance, just look back at Mount Sinai. Right? Let's look at the Jews and what happened to them after Mount Sinai. They, they experienced this power and this communion with God, and the earth is shaking. And, and as soon as it's done, what happens? They almost immediately stop listening. They, the golden calf. Um, they fear the Canaanites so much that God kills that generation. Right after they 
Across the Red Sea, there's this desire to go back to Egypt, doubting God's power, even after they've witnessed the plagues and him parting the Red Sea. They have seen and experienced this power of God. God revealed himself to them powerfully, and yet they refuse. Now, to some, this may seem like a foolish warning that the author of Hebrews is giving here. Who's going to refuse the call of Jesus when he's speaking from heaven? But all too often, we fall into that group who refuses to listen. Um, The people in the Bible, we read time and again, refuse God. And yet we have experienced the same power, the same God, the same saving grace, and oftentimes we refuse to acknowledge the call of Jesus. And then we get to see what happens when we refuse him. When we looked back towards the Jews after Sinai, we see pain, death, and judgment follow them. Um, A whole generation wanders in the wilderness before they go into the promised land. And those are all possible for us too, right? Those are things that are going to happen again. And yet, we see that a greater judgment is coming. The phrase that is in verse 26, and I want to read it again. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase comes from Haggai, and it's a warning, again, that these hearers would understand as Jews. It's part of their history. And we see that not only does Jesus' call from heaven shake the earth, as the voice of God did at Sinai, but it also shakes the heavens and the earth. And that then brings us to this idea that there are these things that can be shaken, or as Dave talked about last week, these movable or removable things. It says this phrase yet once more in verse 27 indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So these things that can be shaken are the things of this earth, material things, and the things that we foolishly value over the things that cannot be shaken. And these are the things that will be removed. This is a warning. There's greater judgment coming. Be aware of what's going to remain. As we look towards that second coming of Christ, we're not going to be able to use our worldly gains, the things that we've worked for, to earn any sort of blessing or grace or mercy from God. Those things are the things that are going to be removed. But there is good news in all of this, isn't there? At the end of verse 27, it says, so that the things that cannot be shaken may remain, and then we become unshakable is that good news. We have that opportunity. Last week, Dave talked about the fact that Jesus is now in heaven and he's acting as our mediator, basically allowing us to communicate with God freely. Because he's our mediator, we can commune with God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 18 tells us that we are sons and daughters of our God, the creator. And that's a crazy thought. We stand firm in the knowledge that we have a certain future, and it's the future of eternity spent with him. We can approach God with confidence because we have been brought into this unshakable kingdom. We're viewed as his family. We can communicate with him. So if the call that's presented here at the beginning of this passage is for us to respond positively, our response then is worship. Let's read verse 28. 
Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Our positive response is part of our gratitude. We respond gratefully, and because of our response and our gratefulness, then we worship and we need to worship in an acceptable fashion. But now, of course, the question comes, what does acceptable worship look like? And I think it's helpful if we spend a little bit of time talking about what it's not. Uh, Please don't use this passage to say there's acceptable kinds of music in worship, like the drums are great, the drums are bad, the electric guitar is no good, the electric guitar is the only appropriate way to worship God. Right? This isn't talking about the kind of music we play or the songs that we sing on Sunday, although I do want to say Uh, that Pastor Austin is always very careful to make sure that the music we do on Sunday certainly fits these requirements of being acceptable worship to God. But it's, it's more than just what we're doing. Worship is much more than the songs we sing. Our whole life is worship. And so when we're looking at this idea of what is acceptable worship, we need to look at what does it look like to live a life of acceptable worship. It's what we do what we think, what we say. And this is why Jesus tells us that we need to worship in spirit and in truth. Now this passage comes from the book of John, and Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and she's realizing that this guy she's talking to is is really important. He's a prophet. He communes well with God. And so she's trying to figure out something. Where is the appropriate place to worship. Some of the Samaritans thought, oh, there's this mountain where our forefathers used to worship, but the Jews say go to Jerusalem and worship, and so it's this whole idea of, of where do I worship, and Jesus' response shows her that that's missing the point. It's not where we worship that matters, but it's how. We worship the truth that is Jesus and his saving work, and we do that through the Spirit, and through God's Spirit, then we're able to worship with our spirit. And John Piper in Desiring God sort of helped me understand that, and so I'm going to read a passage from Desiring God. Hopefully it helps you understand the idea of spirit and truth. Worship must be vital and real in the heart, and worship must rest on a true perception of God. There must be spirit, and there must be truth. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church full or half full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy, and cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. And so this idea of acceptable worship is worshiping in spirit and in truth. This helps us to see that to worship God in spirit and truth means that we understand the truths that God has given us as much as we can and that we act upon those understandings with passion. (laughs) If we have one or the other, we're missing the point. We need to be passionate worshipers who understand the truth of God. Romans 12.1 presents it in another way that's helpful. It tells us that we are, our bodies are living sacrifices and that the use of our bodies to worship God is an act of spiritual worship. And this then helps us see that there's this physical component in spiritual worship. 
So if the call was to respond positively, that's what the author of Hebrews is giving us here. There's this call, respond positively, don't refuse. And then that positive response is to worship, and acceptable worship is worship in spirit and in truth. Then we must worship with our whole being, our whole beings worship. We know that worship is more than just what the songs we sing on Sunday. In fact, we go through life as worshipers at all times. The question then becomes not if we are worshiping, but it becomes what or who are we worshiping. If we're being selfish, if we're more concerned with me, then we're worshiping ourselves. If we're greedy, if we're being greedy and, and more concerned with money, then we're worshiping money. But we are worshiping nonetheless, and so we are created worshipers. In Luke and Matthew, we see this story of Jesus kind of telling someone what's what's the most important commandment. What does it look like to truly worship God? And this is what he says. He says, we are to love the Lord our our God with all our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. And this just points to the fact that it's our whole being. All of what we are must be a part of worship in God. This is here to help us understand that the whole being is involved. Every act that we do is either an act of worship to God or to something less, to something else. We are created to worship, and so we want to worship in an acceptable way. I grew up in youth group. I went on a lot of the same trips that we take the students on here, and I went to a challenge, and Francis Chan was speaking. I'll always remember he was very good at presenting um, analogies that helped us to understand what complex ideas looked at. So to understand that we are always worshipers, that we will always be worshiping, he started eating this Snickers bar up on stage. And I don't know if you guys like Snickers or not, but Francis Chan obviously did, because he was very much enjoying the Snickers up on stage. And he started talking about how great this Snickers was. Man, the chocolate in this Snickers is so good, and it's gooey, and the the caramel just sort of pulls out of this, and it's so good. And he started then helping us understand that you could worship this Snicker, this earthly thing, or get so distracted by this that you lose the fact, lose the idea that this Snickers was a created thing, created by God to be enjoyed by you, right? How awesome is it? that God gave us the ability to enjoy something as simple as a Snickers, okay? This, in some ways, seems like a silly minor thing, right? A Snickers bar that doesn't necessarily lead me to this awesome worship of God. But it definitely helps us understand that with the right focus, we always have an opportunity to worship God. And so it's why it's important to always have the right focus. We need to live with our focus on the forever, If we're going to live lives that are acceptable worship of God, we need to be concerned with the things that will survive the shaking that we read about in Hebrews, right? God is going to shake the earth and the heavens, and some things aren't going to survive that shaking. And so focus on the things. Here's this call. Focus on the things that are going to stick around. This doesn't mean we ignore or totally remove ourselves from the things of this earth. Dave talked about don't be heavenly absent-minded. Don't be so focused on heaven that you miss the things that God wants us to do here. Okay? 
but again, our focus is on those eternal things. In fact, the, the author of Hebrews starts chapter 13 by talking about here are things that you need to do on this earth. Here is a, the appropriate way to worship, the acceptable way to worship. Let brotherly love continue. Be hospitable. Uh, remember those in prison. Be pure in your marriage. All these things that we do here on earth with the right focus are acceptable forms of worship. The intent and focus are on the internal. I take care of others not because it does some good um, that's going to gain me favor. I do it because God loves me and because of that love I want to serve. I eat, I feed myself so that I can thank God and serve him with my life and live and be a good husband so that I am honoring and praising God if my focus is right. Uh, this week I would encourage you, the book that talks the most about having the right focus, the focus on forever, is Ecclesiastes. Uh, it's a great book that tells us, here's how we live in this shakable, removable world and still focus on God. <clears throat> and then the last part of this passage is a little scary. Uh, I think it's a pretty scary picture that we're presented with. But when we understand God, it is a wonderful and necessary aspect of who he is. And that's the fact that our God is a fire. Verse 29 says, for our God is a consuming fire. The idea that God is a consuming fire isn't necessarily a comforting thought at all times. It can be a little scary. Um, fire is this interesting thing. So over here, we have sort of the, the peaceful fire. Some of my fondest memories are sitting around campfires or fireplaces with friends and talking and even doing Bible study. And so this, this contained fire is really pleasant place in my memories. And then we have this idea of the uncontained consuming fire, and that's a lot scarier, right? Um, just two weeks ago, I was able to be a part of a team that went to South Dakota for the Lakota trip. And the first part of that trip, we go, we, we spend time in Platte, South Dakota. Uh, we bring a lot of students, and we do sort of this camp VBS thing where our students are staying in tents with Students that Pastor Gus is the guy we partner with. He brings them, and we, we partner. We do crafts and games and Bible lessons and have a good time. And then usually what we do with that second part of that trip is we go up to Wanbli, where Pastor Gus's church is, and we do work projects. And this year we were planning on building a stage, um, doing some painting, so, sort of the things we've done in the past to help Gus's church and compound look nice, be more functional, safer, but as we were at, uh, at uh, Platte this year, doing that first part of our trip, a wildfire actually started going through the area where Gus is from, up in Wan Blee. And so as we're driving into Wan Blee, we look to our right, and there's, there's just this huge swath of burned ground. And it's this giant scar of black as all these things have burned because of this wildfire. And it got about uh, less than five miles from where Gus's church was at, and so we were definitely right in the middle of it. And so what we ended up doing was instead of working on a stage, instead of, of doing the things that we had planned to do, uh, we went and helped repair this barbed wire fence for a lady from Gus's church who has horses. And so she needed to let her horses out in the pasture. And so we spent a very hot, tiring Friday uh, putting up barbed wire fence. And it was just this really interesting thing to be in the midst of this burned land and just to see nothing but black 
as we're you know, pounding in new posts and working on all that, you just saw the destructive power of fire. Um, trees were consumed. There was just a hole in the ground where a tree used to be. It was completely gone. And there were even times when the root systems were still smoldering and burning, and so you'd have smoke coming up from the ground as we're in there working. And so we were just given this very vivid picture of fire and what it can do when it's not contained. And this picture then carried with us, and it was a scary picture. And it's scary because if God is a consuming fire and he's consuming the things that can be shaken, the things that can be shaken might be what we focus our lives on. It might be what we work our whole lives to obtain if we're not careful. And so those things, these things are going to be consumed by a fire that's going to leave nothing left like the fire that we saw in Juan Bli. And that's why it's so important for us, since our God is a fire, that we don't forget our focus. Matthew 6, 20 through 21, this is a verse I'm sure you're all very aware of. It tells us to store up our treasures in heaven, and where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And so this is just this reminder. Please focus on the things that matter. Focus on the eternal. The things are going to get messed up. They're going to get shaken and, and disappear. But focus on the things that won't be shaken, that are part of that unshakable kingdom. 1 Corinthians 10.31 helps us again to remember that that's not saying don't live life here. Don't be absent-minded in your thoughts of heaven. It says, Whether, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We have this ability to focus on the things eternally while interacting with the things of this earth. Yet, it is very easy to get sidetracked. It's very easy for us to forget our focus. Uh, my wife, this last week, gave me a, an excellent picture to use to help me understand this. Um, I was writing my sermon Thursday and got home. And usually when I get home from work, I like to do something helpful, whether that's uh, take the kids for a while so my wife gets a break or clean up or whatever it is. And so oftentimes I'll come and say, what, do you, what would you like me to do? And my wife um, says, hey, can you do the dishes in the sink? Which is great. I, I don't love doing dishes, but I do dishes often. And so I am, okay, so I walk in the back door and my wife says, do the dishes in the sink. And I walk to the front and I hang up my bag, and already the thought of doing the dishes that I just said I would do has left my brain. And I start being helpful. I, I'm picking up in the front room. I'm interacting with my kids. I'm telling them how much I love them. All good things. I didn't intentionally forget to do the dishes in the sink. And yet the fact that they were down here in the sink, I didn't see them, right? And so my wife says, hey, can you do the dishes? Oh, yes, yes, I'll do the dishes in the sink. And so then I'm in the back room, and I'm walking and by the time I made it to the kitchen, I got distracted and started cleaning off the counter, and I couldn't see the dishes in the sink. And my wife is wonderful and very patient, and she says, Josh, can you do the, the dishes in the sink? And I respond, finally, I say, oh, yes, out of sight, out of mind, which is a, a, a phrase that we all use, right? We forget our focus. I should have been focused on those dishes, is what my wife had asked me to do. And not by intention, not because I don't value my wife, I kept neglecting to do them. And I think in many ways that's how we interact with the spiritual kingdom. We forget our focus. So God often gives us the carrot. There's the analogy of the donkey pulling the cart, and there's the carrot in front that encourages the donkey to go forward. God often gives us the carrot on why it's important for us to remember our focus. 
Um, there's eternal reward. Um, it's for his pleasure. It's for his glory. It, it uh, helps the church. All these things are good reasons to be focused on the eternal. But here, God is also giving us the stick to encourage the donkey to move forward uh, when it's not listening, right? No matter what we do on this earth, it's going to go away. No matter how much good thing, how many good things I do, how much work I do, I pour into being a good person, those things are going to go away. So no matter what, it's going to go away. And so we need to value, we need to focus on the forever. Don't forget the focus on the eternal things. Then we, we, we see that the reason, why, why is God then this consuming fire? And it's because God is holy. He is eternal and set apart, different than we are. And all our work here on this earth is not going to cause him to love us because of our sin, right? Our sin is this barrier. So no amount of good deeds, good things is going to cause God to love me, right? Things tainted by sin have no place in his kingdom. There's the analogy of God is like this cup of water, and if you put one drop of ink in it, it contaminates the whole thing, and that's like sin. So he, he does not interact with sin. Those things tainted with sin have no place in his kingdom. Those are the things shaken. But this is why it's then important to respond positively to the person of Jesus and to worship him with our whole life and our whole being. It's only through Jesus' death and resurrection that we can be viewed as holy and sinless as well so that we can communicate and be in communion with God. It's through Jesus that we have this chance to be unshakable. However, we won't do that on our own. Often we sing of God's holiness. We sang holy, holy, holy at our wedding. Um, It was going during our unity candle lighting. But the holiness of God, I think sometimes we forget that it can be a very intimidating thing. Um, It's a separateness, an ununderstandableness. Earlier we talked about the fact that we have the ability to approach the throne of God. Um, And because we've become part of this unshakable kingdom, we have that ability. We can approach the throne of God. And it's a great thing, but I think we can approach the throne of God in improper ways. I think we can approach the throne of God flippantly with this sort of nonchalance of, I just do what I do and I'm going to talk to God and that's no big deal. I think we can approach the the throne of God with fear and without understanding that Jesus is our mediator and allowing us to come there. And I think we can approach the throne of God arrogantly and somehow believe that our good works have enabled us to communicate with God. Our God is holy and the only reason that we are able to approach his throne is because of Christ in our life and his act as a mediator. And then the last thing that we see with God being a consuming fire is that we serve the ultimate power. Everything that we do is insignificant compared to God. It will be consumed. Not only does it show us his, his power, but it also then helps us, leads us to worship him even more because God is above us. He is so powerful, he created us. Um, he's over everything that he creates. He's sovereign. This God that we serve is the ultimate power. And because he's the ultimate power, he is the way that we focus and the thing that allows us to be part of this unshakable kingdom. We celebrate that we won't be part 
of the consumed. Well, so what then does Hebrews 12, 25 through 29 lead us to? Um, We have these three reminders, right? Jesus is calling to us. We should respond with worship. And our God is a fire, and that can be a scary thing. So what does that then lead us to? Well, I think hopefully you're getting that there's a pretty clear gospel presentation in this passage. We need Jesus. We are part of this shakable kingdom unless we have Christ in our life. And it's only through his death and resurrection that we join this unshakable kingdom. Hopefully this passage helps us in our worship of a powerful God and we recognize how awesome and above us he is and that causes us to want to worship him. Hopefully this passage allows us to be reminded to have an eternal perspective. We are encouraged to make our lives here on earth pleasing to an eternal God. And one just small bit of application that I've done with the youth group before, and I would encourage you to do something similar, it doesn't have to be this, to help us be encouraged to have an eternal perspective. I I print out and cut out these little cards that say on them DSFSB, all in caps. It stands for Don't Settle for Second Best. And I give them to the students, I tell them, put them in your wallets, put them in your cars, put them wherever you'll see them often. And it's this reminder to not settle for those things that aren't going to be eternal, right? Um, Settle for the things of God. And whatever that looks like in your day, there is going to be opportunities to either settle for the second best thing or settle for God. Whether it's, I'm taking a test and I can cheat, and get a good grade, or I can settle for the better thing, work hard, and and learn so that I'm honoring God with my actions. Or I can settle for uh, dating this girl and doing inappropriate things now, or I can wait and settle for the things that God has in store for me. And so it's just this reminder that they have to constantly be focused on the, the forever. So whatever that looks like in your life, if you want to write a DSFSB and put it in your wallet, that would be great. If you have some other way to be reminded to focus on the eternal, I would encourage you to do that. But today, we're going to give you an opportunity to be reminded of the eternal. We're going to take communion. So if I can have the um, elders who will be serving communion come forward. We get to take this communion and be reminded of the things that Christ has done in our life. We get to be a fellowship and enjoy this communion together. Uh, One of the last places I took communion was in Haiti on our missions trip. And it was, again, just a reminder that we are part of this worldwide church. And so together we are focusing on the eternal. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for today. Thank you for this fellowship and just the opportunity that we have now to be focused on the eternal and to remember the things that matter. We thank you for your son and his death and resurrection and that we get to remember that today with the taking of these elements. And just pray that we take it with the right heart and with the right motivation and that we are uh, in a good standing, a good place with you as we take these things. It's in your son's name. Amen.